Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 through 39. Verses 21 and 22. Then Jesus went thence and departed into the coast of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coasts and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. Burkett notes. Observe here the constant employment of our Savior. He went about doing good from place to place. In the borders of Tyre and Sidon, he finds a faithful woman of the race of the Canaanites, who becomes a humble supplicant to Christ, while the Jews neglected so great salvation. Yea, she not only speaks to him, but cries unto him. Were we duly affected with our spiritual wants, we could speak to God in no other language than that of cries and tears. Nothing but cries can pierce heaven. Observe, too, though all of Israel could not example the faith of this Canaanite, yet was her daughter tormented with a devil. Learn that neither truth nor strength of faith can secure us against Satan's inward temptations or outward vexations, and consequently the worst of bodily afflictions are no sufficient proof of divine displeasure. Observe 3. The daughter did not come to Christ for herself, but the mother for her. Perhaps the child was not sensible of its own misery, but the good mother feels both the child's sorrow and her own. True goodness teaches us to appropriate the afflictions of others to ourselves. It causes us to bear their griefs and to sympathize with them in their sorrows. Verse 23. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she crieth after us. Burkett notes. Strange that a miserable supplicant should cry and sue while the God of mercy is speechless. What, is the foundation of mercy dried up? O Savior, we have oft found cause to wonder at thy words, but never till now at thy silence. Learn hence that Christ doth sometimes delay to return an answer to a well-qualified prayer. Sometimes his people do not pray earnestly enough. Sometimes they pray too earnestly for some outward and temporal mercy. Sometimes the mercy they pray for is not good for them, or maybe it is not yet good for them. Let us not, then, judge of God's hearing prayer by his present answer. Verse 24. But he answered and said, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Burkett notes. Observe, when our Savior doth answer, he gives not one word of comfort, but rather a repulse. Christ has oftentimes love in his heart to his people, when they can read none in his countenance, nor gather it from his discourse. Observe the answer itself. Christ says not, I am not set but unto the lost sheep of the house of Adam, but to the lost sheep of Israel. The Jews are compared unto sheep, to the Gentiles unto dogs. Christ insinuates that though she were a lost sheep of Adam, yet not being one of the lost sheep of Israel, he could do nothing for her. It's a common saying among the Jews that the nations of the world were likened to dogs, whereas they were God's sons and daughters. Verse 25. Then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. Burkett notes. Yet hath not this poor woman done. Christ's former silence and his present denial cannot silence her. She comes, she worships, she cries, Lord, help me. Oh, what an undaunted grace is the grace of faith. It has a strong heart and a bold forehead. 
Preemptory denials cannot dismay it. This woman will not despond, though her prayer of faith, from the knees of humility, succeed not. Verse 26. But he answered and said, It is not met to take the children's bread and cast it to the dogs. Burkett notes, Observe here the seeming severity of Christ to this poor woman. He calls her not a woman, but a dog, and as it were, spurns her from his feet with a harsh rebuke. Did ever so severe a word drop from those mild lips? What shall we say? Is the Lamb of God turned a lion, that a woman in distress, imploring pity, yea, a good woman, and a humbled supplicant, should be thus raided out of Christ's presence for a dog? Learn hence that Christ puts the strongest faith of his own children upon the severest trials. The trial had never been so sharp if her faith had not been so strong. Usually, where God gives much grace, he tries grace much. Verse 27. And she said, Truth, Lord, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Burkett notes, Observe how her humility grants all. Her patience overcomes all. She meekly desires to possess the dog's place, not to crowd to the table, but to creep under it and to partake of the crumbs of mercy that fall from thence. Indeed, she showed one of the best qualities of a dog in keeping her hold where she had once fastened, not letting go or giving over until she'd gotten what she desired. Learn hence that nothing is so pleasing unto Christ as to see his people following him with faith and importunity when he seems to withdraw from them. Verse 28. Then Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, great is thy faith. Be it unto thee, even as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. Burkett notes, The disciples, observing her behavior, might have been ready to say, O woman, great is thy patience, great is thy humility. But Christ says, Great is thy faith. He sees the root, we the branches. Nothing but faith could thus temper the heart, thus strengthen the soul, thus charm the tongue. O powerful grace of faith, which Christ himself could no longer withstand, but cries out as a person overcome by the prevalency of it, O woman, great is thy faith. Note that no grace ever goes away from Christ uncrowned. Though we may wait long for mercy, yet the hand of faith never knocked in vain at the door of heaven. Mercy is as surely ours as if we had it, if we have but faith and patience to wait for it. This good woman found it so, to her unspeakable comfort, and the same shall we find in the exercise of the same grace. Question. But how doth this poor woman's faith appear to be great faith? Answer. Because having no promise to rely upon, and suffering so many repulses with seeming contempt, she still retained a good hope for Christ's kindness and mercy. Learn hence, one, that the faith of those who, depending on God's goodness, do place a humble confidence in God, and are not by great temptations or discouragement removed from that their confidence. Such faith is deservedly styled great faith. Two, that the faith of believing Gentiles was not only praiseworthy and well-pleasing to God, but more excellent and better pleasing than that of Jews, to whom the promises did belong. Verses 29 through 31. And Jesus departed from thence, and came nigh unto the Sea of Galilee, and went up into a mountain, and sat down there. And a great multitude came unto him, 
having with them those that were lame, blind, dumb, maimed, and many others, and cast them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. Insomuch that the multitude wondered when they saw the dumb to speak, the maimed to behold, the lame to walk, and the blind to see, and they glorified the God of Israel. Burkett notes, Observe here, 1. The charity. 2. The faith of the multitude in bringing the blind, the deaf, and the dumb to Christ. Their charity in lending eyes to the blind and a tongue to the deaf, who could neither come to Christ themselves nor speak for themselves. Every man has a tongue to speak for himself. Happy is he that has a tongue to pray and intercede for others. This charity did the people exercise here. Observe also their faith. They laid the lame and blind down at Jesus' feet, relying upon his power and believing his willingness to help and heal them. Observe farther the effects of this miracle upon the multitude. It was twofold. One, they were struck with admiration and wonder to see such cures wrought as exceeded the course of nature and the power of art. Two, they glorified the God of Israel. That is, they acknowledged it to be a wonderful work of power and mercy wrought by that God whom Israel worshipped. Whence we learn that the miraculous works of Christ, which he wrought before the multitude, were obvious to their senses and did not constrain the beholders, if not blinded with pharisaical obstinacy, to acknowledge the power of God communicated to Christ and to praise him for it. The multitude marveled and gloried at God. Verses 32 through 36. Then Jesus called his disciples unto him and said, I have compassion on the multitude, because they continue with me now three days and have nothing to eat, and I will not send them away fasting, lest they faint in the way. And his disciples said unto him, When should we have so much bread in the wilderness as to fill so great a multitude? And Jesus said unto them, How many loaves have ye? And they said, Seven, and a few little fishes. And he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves and the fishes, and gave thanks, and brake them, and gave them to his disciples, and the disciples to the multitude. Burkett notes, Here we have the second miracle of Christ's compassionate feeding the hungry multitude. Chapter 14, we read of 5,000 fed with five loaves and two fishes. Here Christ feeds 4,000 with seven loaves and a few small fishes. We observe that Christ fed fewest when he had the most provision. When he had seven loaves, he fed but 4,000. When he had five loaves, he fed 5,000. Thus the wisdom and power of Christ is glorified by him, as he pleases. The feeding of 1,000 with one loaf was as true a miracle as the feeding of 7,000. Our Savior did put forth the powers of his Godhead in working miracles after what manner seemed best to his own wisdom. Observe farther, a double action performed by our Savior. He gave thanks, that is, he prayed for a blessing upon the food, teaching us our duty that if the Son of God did look up to heaven and bless his food, we should not sit down to our food as a beast at his fodder, without craving a blessing upon it. The next action was, he gave to his disciples. But why did he distribute the loaves by the hands of his disciples? Answer, because the disciples questioned, through the weakness of their faith, whether such a multitude as four thousand could be fed with so small a provision as seven loaves. Now our Savior, to convince them how easily he could do that thing that they had judged impossible, distributes the bread by them, making use of their own eyes and hands for their conviction and satisfaction. 
Thus Christ, to shame the unbelief of his disciples, makes them not only spectators, but actors in that work, which they judge to be impossible to be effected. Verses 37 through 39. And they did all eat, and were filled, and they took up the broken meat that was left, seven baskets full. And they that did eat were four thousand men, besides women and children. And he sent the multitude away, and took ship, and came to the coasts of Magdala. Burkett notes, They did all eat, not a crumb or a bit, but to fullness and satisfaction. Yet seven baskets remain, answering the number of the loaves, as the twelve baskets in the former miracle answered the twelve apostles. In both more is left than was at first set on. It's hard to say which was the greater miracle, the miraculous eating or the miraculous leaving. If we consider what they ate, we may justly wonder that they left anything. If what they left, that they ate anything. Observe lastly, Christ would not have these fragments lost but gathered up. The great housekeeper of the world will not allow the loss of his orts. Oh, how dreadful will the account of those be who have large and plentiful estates to answer for as lost, being spent upon their lusts in riot and excess. (laughs) 